Today's scripture reading is Luke chapter 16, verses 1 to 13. Again, that's Luke chapter 16, verses 1 to 13. If you don't have a Bible with you, you can grab the Bible in the seat in front of you and open it to page 822. Please stand for the reading of God's word. Hear now the word of the Lord. He also said to the disciples, there was a rich man who had a manager and charges were brought to him that this man was wasting his possessions. And he called him and said to him, what is this that I hear about you? Turn in the account of your management for you can no longer be manager. And the manager said to himself, what shall I do since my master is taking the management away from me? I am not strong enough to dig and I am ashamed to beg. I have decided what to do so that when I am removed from management, people may receive me into their homes. So summoning his master's debtors one by one, he said to the first, how much do you owe my master? He said, a hundred measures of oil. He said to him, take your bill and sit down quickly and write 50. Then he said to another, and how much do you owe? He said, a hundred measures of wheat. He said to him, take your bill and write 80. The master commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness. For the sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. And I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth, so that when it fails, they may receive you into the eternal dwellings. One who is faithful in a very little is also faithful in much, and one who is dishonest in a very little is also dishonest in much. If then you have not been faithful in the unrighteous wealth, who will entrust to you the, new, the true riches? And if you have not been faithful in that which is another's, who will give you that which is your own? No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Good morning, everyone. Join me as we continue to worship, as we pray. Living God, would you help us to hear your word, that through the power of your Holy Spirit we may understand, and by understanding we may believe, and believing we may joyfully follow your way in all faithfulness, seeking your honor and glory in all that we do. Through Jesus Christ, our Savior and Lord, amen. So we continue with uh, a short series on the money parables of Jesus, and um, as we think about this, this area of life, I think um, it's not too difficult when we turn on mediums of TV or Netflix or whatever you have you, we're fascinated by crooks and thieves. You turn on those Mediums, and you'll see movies, you'll see TV shows where um, people steal, and there's something in us that grabs our attention, and we find ourselves being consumed um, by thieves who steal for whatever reasons that they have. Long, long time ago, there was an incident in the 60s, that's probably before most of our time, in Britain, there's this famous train robbery. Um, it was brilliantly planned and schemed 
Back in those days, uh, mail trains were carrying all these funds um, that would typically at different parts of the track in that um, journey slow down. And these criminal, criminal uh, masterminds, in paying attention, they, you know, they noticed it and they took advantage of this train when it slowed down. Now the people, the engineers who did the job day in, day out, were used to the monotony of the repetition and they were just complacent until someone noticed the weak link and took advantage and stole um, an enormous amount of money. Fast forward in 1990s, again in Britain, there's this famous bank robbery, somewhere around like half a billion dollars. Believe it or not, back in those days, at least in England, I don't know if they did it here, you, you would have a normal clerk carrying a briefcase of bearer bonds with no guards, dressing normally, um, try to look as unconspicuous as possible, and they thought they were doing a great job because, you know, didn't stand out, looked like any other business person going back and forth until someone paid attention and realized what was happening and robbed this man with nothing, no gun, just um, because he paid attention and the heist was successful. Maybe you are thinking of people like Bernie Madoff with his Ponzi schemes and how people and institutions have been affected or more recent um, incidents of people who have mismanaged and lost billions of dollars. Today's parable is a, an odd parable an uncomfortable parable that is often not preached on. It almost sounds as if Jesus is pointing at this crook, this thief, this dishonest manager, and saying, hey, look at what he did, go do likewise. But what is Jesus really teaching us? Let's look at the parable. The parable starts with verse um, 1, chapter 16, where now Jesus said to the disciples. Chapter 15 was a response back and forth, well, in the context of the Pharisees and the scribes who are actually getting on Jesus' case for receiving sinners um, and eating with them. So after having addressed the famous three parables of the what lost coin, sheep, and the prodigal son, now Jesus shifts, speaks to his disciples, and begins the, um, the parable here. Um, Jesus is speaking, and speaking to the dis- disciples, he's pointing, uh, focusing on edifying those who will build up his church. And he continues and says, There was a rich man who had a manager. And charges were brought to him that this man was wasting his possessions. The two figures in the parable, you have a rich man that we don't really hear too much about. And there is a second character, his manager. Now, most of the audience, you can imagine, you know, the Pharisees, the religious leaders. You have Jesus' disciples and you have the crowd around them. Majority of people, including Jesus' disciples, were probably not very wealthy. They were so far more 
more people were poor and very few were rich. Majority of the people were probably from the country, very few from the city. And when Jesus speaking in the language of a manager, the least that these listeners would think of would be people like Joseph, who was a manager to the Potiphar when he was taken as a slave to Egypt. Most rich people um, back in Jesus' time, perhaps in many ways as today, maybe not today as much, but they inherited riches. Remember, there was a complaint last week I spoke about with the younger brother who came, who was not satisfied with the inheritance rule. Um, and just because you received the riches doesn't mean you had the know-how of managing. Um, but there were people, although they didn't have an inheritance, you know, they had the brains, they had intelligence to administrate and manage. Um, and a rich man would look for a manager because he wants to make the most of it. And it's important that they, ha they hire a right one, a trustworthy one, right? Because if you don't, what's going to happen? I think maybe not as much now, although I still see some. Think of like a young athlete uh, who just signed a multi-million dollar contract and is looking for a good money manager. We've heard, unfortunately, enough instances of people uh, finding or hiring a bad manager who took advantage of their lack of, lack of knowledge or expertise or just, uh, just you know, wisdom, and, you know, they were ripped off. Now, fortunately, I, I see a lot more intentionality in these pro sports preparing these young athletes. Uh, but when you look at this passage and think about the money theme, there's a word that repeats again and again and again. There are two different forms. One is a manager and one is management. The word manager or a steward repeats about three times the office holder who's managing the rich man's estate and the, the, the office of management, stewardship, is repeated four times. In this short parable, we hear again, stewardship, a steward. And it's the theme of this passage. And as a steward, as a manager, you either administrate, you basically superintend all the estate, the affairs, including slaves, if this um, most likely uh, wealthy owner has uh, entrusted. Um, slavery back in those days were different than the slavery that we may think of. Back in those days, um, a slave would be able to also do serve functions of medicine, education, and in today's case, like business administration. Um, and in, in a Roman context, typically you could be a slave or a free person who in working for a rich man would have access to the wealth, the, the owner's wealth, and be an agent able to make these decisions. Kind of like a durable t power of attorney with finances. And, you know, it was such an enviable position that sometimes people would um, sell themselves to become a slave of a rich landowner. It's kind of like what you would envision um, financial advisors going after like a billionaires to invest their portfolio, their money, so that they can earn that 1% or whatever percentage that they get to keep. It's kind of like that. Um, in, in some ways. Now, so the charges were finally brought to um, the manager, and um, the word for 
charges being brought is actually a word that many of us are familiar with. You've heard diabolo. Um, it means to basically slander, accuse, and that's where we get the word diabolos, devil, um, the one who accused. And basically, he's been wasting the owner's possession. And here, the word for wasting or this squandering is actually, there's a word that came up in the previous chapter. Remember the young prodigal son who went and he squandered his property in reckless living? It's the same word. So this manager is basically squandering what's not his, his rich masters, in a reckless way. Um, so the, the master calls him and says this, what is this that I hear about you? Turn in the account of your management, for you can no longer be manager. So he's told to prepare the inventory. He had to have kept good books, probably kept two, one that's official, one that's also a separate so that he knows what he's kind of um, keeping track. And the master does something that you wouldn't expect. Um, if you caught your worker doing something wrong, you, you would fire them and relieve them with the responsibility and any access. But this master tells him to bring the books, but leaves him to his job. And it's, it's usually, you know, when, when someone gets released or fired, you have a security guard uh, from the, you know, corporation come, um, or whoever HR people come, and you're asked to just pick up your personal belongings, you leave your IDs, you leave your laptop, so that you can't do any de more damage, right? So they want to just cut as soon as possible and release you. It doesn't happen. This um, owner, uh, rich man, doesn't do that. And now in hearing this devastating news that he's going to be released, the manager thinks to himself, what shall I do? You know, master is taking away the management away, so he can't manage his properties, assets, and anymore. And he recognized he can't do any of these things that potentially are his options. He can't dig because he's not strong enough. He's been a white-collar worker for a long time, and neither is he able to beg because it's too humiliating. It's beneath him now. So he continues in verse four. This is what I'll do. So instead of freezing or just kind of shutting down, he thinks through and he decides what he's going to do, that he's going to, so that when he it says, when he's removed from management, when he no longer is able to have access to anything, people may receive me into their houses. Remember, Jesus, when he's conversing with the scribes, excuse, Pharisees, and the religious leaders, their complaint was that Jesus was receiving them and eating with them. It's not an accident that Jesus is actually using the language of receiving. This man needs a place to be received into, a place to go, because he will no longer have a place to go. And yes, he's going to lose his status, his respect. He's going to lose his ability to earn income, but he's going to immediately lose a roof. He needs a place to go and live. And so, summoning the master's debtors one by one, he begins to ask, what do you owe my master? 
I mean, he knows what they owe, but he still asks. Um, he wants them to say it because in that transaction, those who will have their loans uh, amended will have this responsibility to extend hospitality and receive. Back in those days, especially here, we see the debt was agricultural, and either you know, the, the rich man, he sold food, or he lent money in exchange for these kind of commodities that were listed here, or perhaps he rented out land and expect payment in produce. Um, and and we, we see these, uh, you know, and, and seeing these like large amounts, we, we know that, you know, these lenders who, excuse me, uh, people who borrow money are not typical day laborers. So when we consider the kind of transaction that he's setting himself with, there's a clear expectation of reciprocation. Uh, reciprocation. Uh, you do something and they are obliged. Kind of like if you are in whatever field, you ask a coworker or you ask um, you know, your, your friend from another or someone you know, you know from another company, you ask for a favor. When you ask for a favor, then there is a spoken or usually unspoken expectation that now you owe them one. If someone goes out of the way and is providing benefit to you, there is a clear cultural expect, um, expectation of reciprocity. I do this, now you are expected to do me a favor when I come to you. So while we see two examples, one with oil and one with wheat, um, these two instances are just representation of many of the kind of uh, people who owed money to this rich man. So when he asks, um, the man or uh, the other person who owes gives the answer, 100 measures of oil. And what does the manager say? Well, take your bill, sit down quickly, and write 50. So 100 measures of oil, like roughly, what does it mean? Um, like standard oil back in those days would be measured in bath. A bath would be kind of like 8.75 gallons or 33 liters. It's immense amount of volume. And 100 uh, measures of bath would be 875 gallons, and it would require about 150 olive trees to produce. Now, olive oil was very kind of... It was an expensive commodity, hard, and you know, the, the weather and everything else would make this more difficult. Um, so the markup would often be high. So this would be worth about 1,000 denarii, over three years of wage for a day laborer. And basically, with this transaction, now the debt is cut in half. It's rushed. You clearly see this kind of desire for um, this deception to happen quickly, um, and you, you, you see that there's a fraud um, thing happening with the steward instead of true reflection of the generosity of the master. I think some, if not many of us, at least in the past or right now, we know what it's like to have debt looming over us. 
whether in mortgages, car loans, school loans, um, credit card debt, if someone comes to us and gives us, like in writing, I'm going to reduce your debt 50%, oh, we're going to take it. Now, there are shams and fake ones too, but if this is legit, you're going to take it. And this is what this guy is doing again and again with people after people. And he goes to the next one. How much do you owe? Well, 100 measure of wheat. Before it's oil, now wheat. Um, take your bill and write 80. So wheat is measured differently uh, with core, one core, typically about 10 ephah or 30 sayas, basically like 10 to 12 bushels or 400 liters in dry volumes. It's massive amount also. So one core would be roughly anywhere from 25 to 30 denarii. So this is worth far more, anywhere from like 2,500 to 3,000 denarii. So like up to like eight to 10 times of year's salary for an average laborer. And it's cutting by 20%. You owed 100, let's cut it. Now take 80. At this point, with what's going on, any rational person in hearing this parable being spoken would expect the master to say, Ha, I got you again! Although you wouldn't expect him to give him the ability to continue to do that. But something really strange happens. It's almost disturbing. It's like, it's like this doesn't quite make sense. So in verse 8, the master, what does he do? He commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness. He doesn't report him. He doesn't call the authorities. But he commends him. He praises him. But get this straight. He doesn't commend him for his, what, dishonest things he has done. Because it's very clear that dishonesty is negative. What he does commend is for his shrewdness, his intelligence, his wise way of handling this situation. This manager was wasteful, irresponsible. He was like a thief, basically. But he, in how he responded at this point, he was shrewd. He acted wisely with insight. There was wit and energy, action. What is Jesus saying in all this, in praising this manager? He's making a statement to the disciples that they are lacking something. You lack shrewdness. You have been examined and you have been deemed lacking. Jesus is calling for gospel shrewdness, kingdom shrewdness. He speaks of being innocent as a dove, but being wise as a serpent. That word wise is actually some same root spoken differently. Only if Christians paid as much attention to the things of eternity 
as they do with their worldly business. Only if Christ followers were spiritually shrewd and concerned and intentional and intelligent about seeking this eternal dwelling. Because what sinners, the people of the world who live with this unrighteous mammon wealth, they're skilled, they're diligent, they look for opportunities, and they're intentional in preparing the only place that they're thinking of, where they can be welcomed and received. Why not the people of God? Why not the citizens of his kingdom? Why don't they, why aren't they shrewd, wise, intelligent in seeking, procuring, preparing for that eternal reward, age to come? Sons of light, in comparison to these people of the age, are just passive. If you're a criminal in any of those you know, scenarios that I spoke in the beginning or any other heist that you might be familiar with, when they plot a plan, they, they usually, at least the good ones, right, they examine the, the whole thing as carefully as possible, and they look for that weak link. They look for an opportunity. It's like, where is it possible to infiltrate? Where is that crack? And they maximize that. They are always looking. They're looking for an opportunity. Just like this manager who, you know, did things clearly that was not acceptable. Well, he, he wasn't passive. He was intentional. He didn't crawl up and thought he was going to die and shrivel away. No, he looked for opportunities. He went out of his way to think about these things he could do. He went to his people that owed money, and he bargained with them to prepare a way where he can also be received when he has nothing. What is Jesus trying to say to his disciples? Right after talking, at addressing the Pharisees and the religious leaders who are basically critiquing and criticizing him for receiving sinners and eating with them. Well, I want you, disciples, to be shrewd in the kingdom, to be bold and look for opportunities for the gospel. You know, we spent time praying Saturday for the country of Afghanistan. And while most of us are feeling overwhelmed and we're trying to just sort things through, how do we begin to even pray? You know, praise be to Lord that there are wise, shrewd, intelligent Christians, businessmen, organizations that have thought about the situation and they're doing what they can to actually raise money, send people, send planes, helicopters to rescue Afghan Christians. Thank God there are wise, shrewd people, instead of being passive, are intentional, proactive in doing that. They look for a crack in the opportunity and they, they take that step for the gospel. They spend their resources. They invite others to share their resources, financial, 
risking people's lives to rescue. The kingdom of God requires shrewd businessmen and women, shrewd elders, shrewd missionaries, shrewd mothers and fathers, especially now, and shrewd students as you are back in school or about to go back to school. Jesus said in Matthew 10, Behold, I am sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. So be wise as a serpent and innocent as doves. In all this, God's children are called to be shrewd in the way they steward the possessions that God has entrusted by being generous in the way they use for people. If an unrighteous person was shrewd using his money for his own selfish interest, how much more should a righteous believer use all the possessions that God has entrusted them, use it for his kingdom and for eternal rewards? So Jesus, after saying all this, he gives three practical applications. The first application we see in verse 9, and Jesus says, I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth, so that what? When it fails, and it will at some point, they may receive you into eternal dwellings. Jesus calls us to be generous with money, with people, for the eternity, for eternal life. There's an emphasis, I tell you, um, and he's telling his disciples what to do with money. And I think one practical way that we can actually implement this is in thinking about how do we give hospitality, right? Uh, because ultimately where we are called to do this to receive the eternal hospitality in heaven when those in heaven will welcome us. Now, back in um, Greco-Roman time, friendship was not exactly the way we would imagine friendship. Now, Jesus counsels um, the disciples here to make friends, but in Greco-Roman context, friendship and economy was actually kind of mixed. So you had friendships um, between superior and, inf uh, and lesser, and also with those who are equal. So. The greater and the lesser friends were often involved in financial patronage. So, you know, the one with more would give finances and patronize the one with less, and there will be this kind of a uh, relationship almost as a client. Those who are equal would actually, having kind of similar status and means, um, would be relating at that level. So. Using money to make friends is actually simply kind of referring to the social reality because back in those times, you know, when money is exchanged, it created or maintained this sort of relationship. Now, Jesus, when he spoke about giving to the poor or sharing resources, he, prior in chapter 6, talked about give without expectation. So what is this talking about? Well, Give it without expectation of being reciprocated, 
give alms to the poor without expecting to be given something back. But that was largely about in this life. You give now without expectation of being given in return. Because people of this world do that. We give now to get something back now. That's what this manager was doing. But we are commanded to give generously to expect what? Reward not now, but later in heaven and eternity. Wealth, possessions that God has given us are meant to be used to win eternal friends. We are to use resources, money especially, generously for the furtherance of the gospel. And if we're not doing that, then we're not making a proper use of what God has entrusted us because they were never ours to begin with. Whether our homes, our cars, whether the, the amount of money that God allows to come through our bank account, all of that ought to be used to bless, to make friends for eternity. Because at the end, we can't take our homes with us. We can't take even a penny with us to heaven. A billionaire, when he dies, can't take anything with him. But the only thing that we'll get to see is the impact on people's lives and their souls, an eternal destination. And how we steward what he has entrusted us can have an impact, hopefully positive impact, in heaven. The disciples are called to use their wits, be shrewd, use the wealth in ways that pleases and serves God so that at the end we'll be received into the eternal house of God. We're not trying to earn because we can't do things to enter. These are rewards that the Bible speaks of. Jesus speaks about storing up rewards in heaven, treasures in the right place. Entering is one thing. Entering is through what Jesus Christ did. But the welcoming by others who are there is something that we are to look forward to because how we steward what he has entrusted us affects that future possibility. We are all created in his image but we, we know that as we recited, we've been going through the catechism, just as Adam sinned, we sinned with him, and that fellowship that was supposed to be there for eternity was severed. And why do we want to enter this, why do we want to be received in heaven ultimately? Well, because heaven is a place where we get to fully experience that fellowship that you and I were meant to have with our God. And as we've been going through the book of Corinthians, the crux of what is most important, we get to be welcomed ultimately into that divine, eternal abode when we trust what Jesus did, that he lived a life that no one else could live in a perfect way, and he died the death that no one else could pay for our sins so that those who trust in him will receive forgiveness 
And as we see later on, and we won't go into it now, but Zacchaeus is a great example. When he experienced that transformation, the way he relates with money fundamentally changes. He becomes released and he's able to give. Why this unrighteous wealth? Probably because if we pursue wealth, we will become selfish. We will, like this man, take advantage of others, like Zacchaeus took advantage of others. And eventually, where does that path lead? It leads to unfaithfulness to God. Money does not last. So he's calling us to use it in a way that pleases him, serves him for eternity. Jesus said these words in Matthew 6, Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal. So no thief, no matter how smart, how shrewd, will be able to steal these because this is the right place, right? But store up where? For yourselves treasures in heaven. That's the right place to store up treasures where neither moth nor rust destroy, where thieves do not break in or steal. They cannot. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Where we invest our money reveals where our hearts are. And if we are consumed by endless accumulation of things, we're just being sinful, wasteful. And we're robbing ourselves from, really, the pursuit of eternal blessing that God gives and has planned for us. Second application Jesus teaches um, is from covering verse 10 through 12. And he calls us to be faithful with money. He calls us to be faithful as a steward. A lot of times people think, well, I'll be better if I have more to manage. But faithfulness is a basic character issue. If I can't be faithful when I have $10, I can't be faithful when I have $100 or $1,000. Because that's not how it works. And Jesus continues, if you have not been faithful with money, which is unrighteous wealth, unrighteous mammon, God will not trust you with true spiritual riches. Many of us Christians, I think we have a lot of room to grow in our trustworthiness with money. We say God is sovereign, but oftentimes God is sovereign, but... mm, not with money. And many have fallen from this. And unfortunately, we still hear news of people falling. And none of us are immune. We got to be trustworthy with money if we want to be entrusted with true spiritual riches. I was looking at some of the testimonies that many, at least half of us, um, submitted in finishing the stewardship class during the summer. And the theme that repeated again and again was, sure, like some practical things about stuff and practical you know, financial literacy stuff. But at the end, the theme is just the repetition of recognizing that God is the owner, I am his steward. And there's nothing more basic and there's nothing more important than getting that question 
whose is it? Is it God's? Then we are his stewards. We are his managers. The cars we drive, even the clothes we wear, homes we live in, money that we are able to earn, they're all things that belong to God. And the question is, how are we managing it? And I think everyone would say they want to continue to be reminded. And that's the one thing that I said last week when I was sharing and preaching. Like, I need to remind myself it's all God every time that I sit down. When I'm counseling you about your finances, I'm preaching to myself because I forget. My sinful heart leans toward holding on my own as if it's mine when it's never to begin with. J.C. Ryle says, he guards us against supposing that such conduct about money as that of the unjust steward ought ever to be considered a light and trifling thing among Christians. He would have us know that little things are the best test of character and that unfaithfulness about little things is a symptom of bad state of the heart. The third application Jesus teaches is in verse 13. He says, No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. In other older translation, you probably hear, heard, you cannot serve God and mammon. Jesus is teaching his disciples, serve God not money. Now, in a Greco-Roman world, a slave could technically be owned by more than one master. Now, you can imagine a household, you have the husband and the wife, and, you know, um, or different contexts, but at the end, when, when different masters call you to do different things, you can't do both, especially when they go against each other. I know during COVID, one of the things that was interesting that I've read about are people... Um, working two virtual jobs, two full-time jobs, and people getting scared about getting caught. They're trying to do what they can to stagger meetings or you know, cut off their screen to continue. And um, there are different issues of, like whether legality or morality, there's, there's a lot of issues there. But um, you, know, you can't serve and obey two masters who are asking two diametrically opposing things. Just as if you are a servant and the master husband is saying this, but the wife is telling you to do something else, you can't do both. You're going to have to choose one, especially if they go against each other. And that's what happens. You can't serve God and money because they fundamentally call you to a different path. The goal is different. We live in a day and age where many of us who say we believe in the gospel do our best to serve God and money. It's impossible. But we keep trying, though. But there are times when pursuit of money will require God to be just God to be slighted. And choice of God will at times lead you to choose less money and less opportunity. 
those who love money will at some point despise God and resent God for what he demands. But those who love him, as we seek to continue to love him and worship him, as we continue to check our hearts, because our hearts are sinful and prone to wander away, we'll get to be received in that eternal abode where others that we have invested, that we were able to walk with, journey together, and share the resources God has entrusted us, we will also hear them welcoming us in that eternal heaven. We can't serve God and money. Sure, we, we try to. But we're fooling ourselves. Let me ask you, for those of us who are married, and this is just as pertinent for me and my wife, you know, what do we talk about as husband and wife? What consumes the crux of our conversation? Or the rest of us, um, you find yourself talking to people about, hey, have you seen my, you have your thing. Or let me show you my, you have your list. Are we more focused, more consumed? Again, it doesn't mean we can't enjoy any of that. But it's the question, are we consumed by that? And then so only thinking about a short 60, 80 years of our life here, or are we being wise and shrewd and thinking about being intentional and stewarding all that he has given us so that we can truly be received in eternity? Place that we were supposed to be with our divine creator, where we're supposed to fellowship. Humphrey Monmouth, I think I mentioned him before a long time ago, or maybe not so long time ago. And I think our summer retreat speaker mentioned him. How many guys still remember Humphrey Monmouth? Okay, couple of people. Un, an unsung heroes of faith during 16th century. A wealthy munch, merchant in cloth business. He had a huge part in the Reformation. And it was essentially with his relationship with William Tyndale, the father of the English Bible. Um, Tyndale needed, I mean, he wanted to translate the Bible uh, from the original, from Greek and Hebrew. And eventually he was martyred for his efforts back um, in 1536. And majority of the King James that English history received and had an opportunity to enjoy, 90% of that came from Tyndale's translation. Um, although back in those days, they were illegal. Um, so in his effort to translate, he needed a place to stay, he needed some salary, he needed books. All of this Tyndale needed, Humphrey Monmouth provided. He, six months of translating the New Testament, it was Humphrey uh, Monmouth who supported him. He patronized him. He, he saw the opportunity, and he used the resources he had to financially empower him to do the work. Later on, um, Tyndale had to leave the country because he was being hunted. And when he left England and went to the continent of Europe, it was because Humphrey Monmouth introduced him to this secret society of merchants called the Christian Brethren that he was able to continue the work. And later on, 
it was through Humphrey um, Monmouth's like, ships that were bringing back cloths back into um, England that he was able to bring the Bibles um, and smuggle them in. Humphrey Monmouth was a shrewd businessman and praised the Lord for people like him who are not passive, active, looking for opportunities, looking for ways to use resources that God has given him, people he knew, money he had, homes, whatever else. Because in so doing, he was making friends who would eventually welcome him in eternity where he would be received. We all long to be received. We all want to. There's a deep part in all of us. We, we, we know that this life can't be it. And Jesus shows us that how we live this life, when we get the gospel, when we get what he did for us, it ought to change the way we relate with what he has entrusted us because he's the owner and we are his steward. Let me finish with a quote by Carl Henry and pray. He was asked back in the 90s, uh, one of the major weaknesses perhaps of the Western church is our affluence. What kind of crippling effect had this had on the Western church, and what can we do about it? And this is what he answered. I don't think that God despises riches. In fact, he gives them to us. What he despises is the misuse of them, and he rewards stewardship. Even Christian missions owe a great debt to the, to the consecrated and often sacrificial philanthropy of well-to-do Christian leaders like Humphrey Monmouth. What we need to do is enlarge the vision and burden of those to whom God has given much so that they understand that they have an opportunity that is rare in the history of Christianity to substantially advance the way of Christ. Brothers and sisters, let us heed the teaching that our Lord gave. Let us pray.